In the early days of YouTube, there were scalability problems with the MySQL database that hosted the data model for all of YouTube's videos. The state-of-the-art solution to scaling MySQL at the time was known as application-level sharding. To scale a database using application-level sharding, you break up the database into shards, which are disjoint regions of data. When you want to query the database from your application, you need to know which shard to query. In your application code, you have to issue the query to a specific shard. The solution of application-level sharding does scale your database. It allows you to have your application and your database scale appropriately. But the downside of this approach is that every application that interfaces with the database now has to include code that is aware of the sharding schema. If you're an application engineer, you don't want to have to worry about the way that the database is sharded, because that adds significant complexity to your code. The engineers at YouTube decided to fix this problem with a project called Vitesse. Vitesse abstracts away the details of sharding by orchestrating the reads and the writes across the distributed database. In a previous episode, we covered the architecture and the read and write path and the story of Vitesse in detail. In today's episode, Jitin Vaidya and Dan Kozlowski of Planet Scale Data join the show to give their perspective on MySQL scalability and their work taking Vitesse to market as a solution to scaling relational databases. Planet Scale Data is a company built around Vitesse, so they sure have a lot of context into how Vitesse works and more generally how database scalability works. It was a great episode, very technical and also some elements of less technical details. I hope you enjoy it. Jiten Vaidya, you are the co-founder and CEO at PlanetScale, and Dan Kozlowski, you are the lead engineer at PlanetScale. Guys, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. Thanks for having us. I want to start by talking about MySQL scalability, or more generally, SQL scalability. When a MySQL database is not scaling well, what kinds of performance issues does that lead to? Typically, a MySQL database is used for OLTP transactions for apps that a user is interacting with in real time. So what that means is that somebody refreshes their profile and they're sitting there trying to see the changes on the screen of the app or in front of their computer, and it takes a long time uh, for, for that little spinning wheel to give them back the changes that they believe that they have just made. That's just one example of how it would manifest in an app. And does the scalability of a MySQL OLTP database compare negatively to that of a NoSQL database like MongoDB? So the, at least in theory, MongoD, uh, NoSQL databases like MongoDB could be scaled horizontally by adding more shards or more machines. and. A single instance MySQL database, uh, you can scale it only by adding more hardware to the node on which that particular instance is running. So there are some practical limitations to how big a node you can make uh, for a MySQL database. So, Yeah, and I would add to that and say that a lot of what you'll see with NoSQL databases is a very similar performance profile for OLAP queries 
as you would get out of a traditional MySQL database. But like Jaten said, the real problem happens when you scale up the database, you can only buy so much hardware. You know, disks only scale so much, CPUs only get so fast, and the real thing that NoSQL database took advantage of wasn't an inherently more efficient architecture. It was the fact that it was easier to horizontally shard them, which meant you could add more CPUs, you could add more disks than what a single server would allow you to do. Why are NoSQL databases easier to horizontally shard than a MySQL database? And could you very quickly describe what horizontal scalability is in contrast to vertical scalability? Correct. So horizontal scalability is when, as Dan said, you add more more hosts, which means more CPU, more disk to your cluster. The reason that it's easier to do that with NoSQL databases is because uh, they do not provide s- some of the inherent guarantees that a relational database provides, such as atomicity, consistency, isolation, durability, or as we all know, ACID, right? It's really hard to have to have a distributed system which is running on multiple hosts, which can provide you with these properties. And key value stores typically at least the shattered key value stores, they do not provide you that guarantee. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of it comes down to how the original key, the original NoSQL databases were put together. They were put together on a single, what we would call a primary key. And it's pretty easy, given a single primary key, to have some mechanism to distribute that across multiple machines. But when you talk about a full relational database where you have multiple tables that have uh, complex and arbitrary relationships with each other, then you start to get to the question of, well, how do I put data that is related to each other in the same place if all I have is a single primary key that is what I'm going to use to send data to different places? Exactly. So what that means in relational parlance is that you don't get secondary indexes, you don't get transactions, and so it's easy to horizontally scale NoSQL key value store databases. What are the traditional approaches to scaling a relational MySQL database? Typically, when companies have grown out of a single node, what they end up doing is that they shard in-app, which means that in their application, they add logic which says that if there are 100 million customers, if the customer ID is between, say, 0 to 10 million, send it to shard number one. So they, they actually end up having multiple connection pools, uh, logic in the app, uh, which looks at, before the query is even created, it looks at the user ID or whatever your sharding key is, and then sends the query on the correct um, connection pool. That's what we ended up doing at YouTube before Vitesse was invented at YouTube. And it really makes the application more complicated, and there is an ongoing cost in terms of, you know, you have to live with that complexity for every new feature that you're going to add. Yeah, I would also say the other route that people will take is depending on your workload, you could get away with just read-only replicas and dealing with eventual consistency of your data. So if you have a system where it's mostly read-only traffic and it's okay if it's eventually consistent, then um, one of the traditional routes you would take for a relational database is to put a bunch of read-only replicas. These are just, it's effectively horizontally sharding, but it's only horizontally sharding your read traffic. So that does give you more capacity, but then you are write-bound. So you can only ever write to a single node, and then that would get replicated to a bunch of other instances. 
But if you ever get into a situation where you have write traffic that is going to exceed the capacity of a single node, then you would have to do what Tem said of start to go jump through all sorts of hoops in application to make your single database uh, actually be a set of databases that the app knows how to route to. I want to zoom in on that idea of application level sharding, because in the last episode with Sugu, we talked about how much overhead this adds to the software development team as a whole, because if I am a a microservice developer and I'm writing a service that serves YouTube recommendations to a user, first of all, I have to write some logic that says, is this user in the first shard or the second shard or the third shard? And you have to write some, maybe a, a switch statement. And then if you are gathering data from other people that that person is related to in order to calculate their recommendations, then you have to say, okay, first fetch the three people closest to this person. And oh, by the way, that's going to require some sharding logic. And then, you know, maybe, you know, the further you go out on the person graph, the more sharding logic you're going to have until your application code looks more like code to navigate through shards of a database than it does to calculate the recommendations of a user. Absolutely. I think I think that was a very good ex- example that you gave that describes the kind of uh, engineering debt that you incur uh, if you decide to shard in app. And not only that, you are always going to have some queries which don't have the user ID in the query. So either a query or a transaction. And in that case, you need to have some mechanism to do a scatter gather across all the shards. And so as as you described, you, you rather than writing your feature code, you end up writing this code that is juggling uh, database connections and parallel queries and so on. Yeah, and in, in addition to all that, the, the other sort of hidden cost that you incur as the engineering team isn't even about the, re, the sharding, it's about the resharding. Because at some point in time, you're going to say, I'm going to write my application so that it has two shards, and then you're going to outgrow that. And you're going to say, now I have to do it to four shards, but if you've already spanned all of the users, now you have to do something about those two databases that have data in them turning those into four databases. Perhaps there's a way that you can do that without having to migrate a bunch of data, but a lot of times what you then have to do is take a downtime, take a maintenance window where you're migrating the data and deploying your app in parallel at the same time. Uh, so now only not only have you got extra engineering effort to keep your complex code up to date, but you have extra engineering effort to maintain your database cluster and you are probably looking at maintenance windows to migrate data, which is only going to get worse as the amount of data you have increases. Jitin, in the previous conversation with Sugu, we talked about the scaling challenges of YouTube and how this application-level sharding just started to cause so many problems that you and him, or I can't remember who started the project, maybe it was somebody else at the company, started basically a project to write middleware to take care of all of this sharding logic and push it down into a middleware database transaction layer. Can you describe more what was going on in that middleware layer, which I think eventually became Vitesse? 
Right, right. So it was Mike Solomon and Sugu who started the project right around 2010. And the first problem, so at that time, I think Sugu might have explained this to you last time, but Mike and Sugu sat down and made a large spreadsheet which described all the problems that we were having around sharding and this database access layer. And they sort of took them out of the day-to-day firefighting. Basically, you know, one thing that I always like to say is that, you know, we are too busy mopping the floor to fix the leak. They decided to that they were going to exclusively work on fixing the leak rather than mopping the floor. And they made this list of the problems that we were having and looked at it and decided to come up with a middleware I mean, the conclusion that they came to was that there were a few design principles that they could use to write this middleware layer, um, which could pretty much solve all the problems that we were were seeing around sharded MySQL databases. And that's how uh, Vitesse was born. The first problem that they concentrated on solving was connection pooling. We had, I think, hundreds of app servers at that time. Maybe we were not quite at thousands. So we were running out of uh, connections in MySQL. And MySQL runs poorly if you have created too many connections to it. And that was the first problem that they wanted to solve. So I think the very first Vitesse piece of Vitesse code was uh, written to solve that problem. But they had this overall design in their mind right from the beginning. How did the YouTube infrastructure have to change in order to get this middleware layer inserted in between the application developers and the database layer? So the infrastructure team at Google always owned this layer which sat in app, but which was used by the developers to access the databases. So it was not that much of a leap uh, to add to add this middleware in between and have that layer now communicate to the middleware rather than directly to the databases. Uh, so I think that's what we ended up doing when Vitesse was deployed first. Initially, the YouTube data, YouTube's databases used to run on YouTube's own data centers. So when YouTube was acquired, all of the pieces of the distributed uh, system that serves out YouTube used to run on YouTube data centers. But very early on, the endpoints that had the maximum amount of QPS were moved out to uh, Google's Borg infrastructure. But for a long time, the MySQL databases still continued to run on YouTube's uh, data center and we were accustomed to treating them as pets rather than cattle, as many times databases are because you know you a database master going down is uh, something that uh, traditionally needed an intervention by a DBA. That's where we were at at that time. When you were at Dropbox, which was a period of four years, sometime after YouTube. How did your experience with Dropbox's infrastructure compare to those of your experience at YouTube? Did did you feel like, oh, Dropbox has problems that relate to my experience at YouTube, like relational database issues? Yes and no. (laughs) Yes, because the funny thing was that that there were four folks from the uh, uh, database and so I, when I left YouTube in 2012, I was managing the site reliability engineering and DBA teams at YouTube. And in between, I worked at a small startup, startup called Endorse.com. 
and uh, for about 16 months and in those 16 months i think four folks who used to report to me at youtube had left youtube and joined dropbox and they were solving similar problems at at dropbox and when i joined dropbox i could have joined them and worked on uh, those problems or i could have done something different and I ended up not working on database related problems at Dropbox. But yes, uh, Dropbox had large MySQL installations and they had also sharded in app, but I think they decided to go with larger number of shards and uh, all the metadata related to the files, the distributed file system that Dropbox has actually ran in sharded MySQL clusters which was managed by one of the senior DBAs, who, who, uh, Rangesh, who used to be on the DBA team at, at YouTube and had joined Dropbox in between. There is this idea that in the early years of Web 2.0, if you, if you consider we're still in Web 2.0, there were a number of companies that were facing scaling relational databases. They had invested in relational databases early on, they hit scale, and all of a sudden now they've got a database scalability problem, they invest in sharding infrastructure, and then they start to have these issues that we talked about earlier with the the application level sharding, and they just live with it, and it's painful, but it's this sort of looming technical debt that is infecting the company. And then at a certain point, you and Sugu, who was the previous guest, took a step back and you said, we solved this problem at YouTube, and people are still having it. And we should probably start a company around solving this problem. Was there some breaking point where you just said, okay, too many people are still encountering this problem of scaling relational databases. We have to start a company around it. Was there some kind of insight you had that that changed your mind to starting the company? I think the turning point was companies that were facing this problem starting to discover Vitesse without, you know, with very little uh, promotion uh, by anybody and starting to use them, uh, use Vitesse in their production infrastructure to solve these problems. So around 2015, Flipkart was the first company to, to discover uh, MySQL, uh, to, to discover Vitesse, join the Slack channel and start interacting with Sugu so that they could deploy that in their production infrastructure to solve their sharding problems. Slack came along, Square came along. So both of us actually, I remember going to Slack and doing a presentation at Slack. I forget when that was, uh, I think with Sugu. Early 2017, late 2016, I, I forget. And they wanted to make a decision about how they should be. They were already sharded and they needed to make a decision about whether they should build this middleware layer themselves or whether they should be using something like Vitesse. And I think Sugu sort of, I think what Su- the pitch that Sugu gave them was it's not a build versus buy, it's a open source, so it's buy and contribute. You know, not, not, not buy, but use something uh, which is already built and then contribute back. And I think that made sense to Slack. Long story short, people like Slack, people like Square were seeing that this is solid uh, production ready open source project that they could use in their production. 
and uh, both Sugu and I felt that more and more people needed help doing this. And so it was very clear to us from the inbound queries that we were seeing on the Slack channel that people needed help. Now, what's worth pointing out is that Vitesse is not just a solution to scaling MySQL databases. It is potentially a solution for scaling all kinds of things that need sharding. Is that correct? That is correct. It's not. The the Vitesse architecture is such that it sits very nicely on top of MySQL. There is very, you know, there are the points which are MySQL specific are very nicely abstracted in pieces of code which can be replaced with other pieces of code that can interact with other relational databases, for example, that might need sharding. So we have looked at what it would take to support something like Postgres, for example. So we will need to rewrite the binary protocol that the client uses to talk to VTGate, which is our uh, stateless proxy. That's the first point that the app connects to. That's one place that we would need to change. And the second is uh, one of the coolest features of Vitesse is this ability to consume the binary replication log, apply sharding logic to it, and start writing to uh, new masters, uh, thus allowing you to do uh, resharding without any downtime for your app. And so what that would mean for Postgres is that I think Postgres does its replication using its write-ahead log. So we will need to figure out how to read that and apply sharding logic to that. So as long as, you know, so it's we have, it's six to nine month, man months worth of work would allow us to sort of put Vitesse on top of Postgres and allow us to shard Postgres. Yes, I mean, to answer your question, it's an architecture that can be used for sharding many different things. One more thing that I would like to point out is that sharding and horizontal scaling is just one of the benefits of uh, Vitesse. There are two other reasons why people uh, decide to use Vitesse. One is it allows people to run stateful workloads under an orchestration framework like Kubernetes. The reason that Vitesse can do that is because I think earlier in the podcast, I described to you how we used to run databases early on in YouTube's own uh, infrastructure. I think around 2012 or 2013, we decided to move those uh, databases from YouTube infrastructure into Google's infrastructure, which ran on Borg, which is the predecessor to Kubernetes. Now, under an orchestration framework, you cannot take, as I was saying, under an orchestration framework like Kubernetes or Borg, you cannot take the longevity of the container on which your master is running for granted. Uh, It can get descheduled um, and you need to have a really good master failover story, a really good service discovery story, and a really good observability story to be able to run stateful workloads like databases and orchestration framework like Kubernetes. And all of that was built into Vitesse over a period of about nine months, which Sugu described as a very painful (laughs) period of nine months. But at the end of it, Vitesse allowed us to run YouTube databases on Borg uh, very, very well which means that it allows people to run stateful workloads in MySQL on Kubernetes very, very well now. And companies like HubSpot use Vitesse 
entirely for that reason they actually sh uh, have i think they use one mysql cluster or database per per tenant so they don't need horizontal sharding of databases but they still use vitess because it allows them to run vitess on kubernetes so that's the second reason why people use vitess and the third reason is that every time youtube went down because somebody wrote a bad query you know, it's really easy for an inexperienced developer to write a query that would do, say, a full table scan using a column that doesn't have an index on it and bring the whole instance down. And every time that happened, we uh, wrote code that allows in VT tablet that allows VT tablet to protect your MySQL instance against that. And that's the third reason why I use people with us. As a side note, I want to say that we did cover the architecture of Vitesse in d detail in the episode with Sugu, and also the documentation and some of the YouTube videos about how Vitesse serves a query and uh, how, just how, what it's doing under the hood are quite good. So for people who do want to go into the, the depths of, of how this architecture works, you will not be disappointed by the material that's already out there. So what you just said about managing stateful workloads on Kubernetes, we just did a show about that very topic, and, and people really liked it because this is a topic where if, I mean, I hear all the time in the Kubernetes community that it is hard to use Kubernetes for stateful workloads, and the stateful workloads is, is a broad statement. Can you explain in more detail what that term is? means what is a stateful workload on kubernetes and why is it hard to do with existing infrastructure uh, aside from vitesse right so a stateful workload basically means that any workload where some data needs to persist across the uh, birth and death of the pod or container on which that particular process is running right Typically, when you have a process started in a pod on something like Kubernetes, it, it gets, it talks to other microservices to initialize itself, or it has all the data in the command line to initialize itself. It starts serving. When the pod goes away, this, the process goes away. You start another pod. It also initializes it, it itself and starts serving. It's not dependent on any information that's inside the pod. Uh, so that's what a stateless uh, service or a stateless workload looks like. As against that, a stateful workload is a workload which is writing something to a volume that is uh, visible inside the pod. And there is an expectation that the data written on that volume would outlive the life cycle of the pod itself. I guess I think that's the sort of the fundamental difference between a stateful workload and a stateless workload. Well, I mean, I think it actually would go part of the reason why Kubernetes has such a problem with stateful workloads is because the language that we use when we talk about Kubernetes is things like pods and volumes and processes. But at the end of the day, a stateful workload is I have some information. That information is going to be available no matter what happens. 
So a user who wants to put, you know, we, we normally get this on databases by treating them very well, you know, making sure that they are very special, that they have lots of protections against deletions or against hardware failures. But when we get into Kubernetes, Kubernetes from the ground up was designed as a system where anything could go away. So as they started building in persistence, you still have this disconnect where, um, well, we'll have a persistent volume. Yeah, but that persistent volume has to be attached to a node and it's got to be communicated with over whatever mechanism uh, the pod has to talk to that volume. So you still get into a situation where if the node goes away, you've lost your data and you've sort of violated that unspoken contract of a stateful system. One of the things that Vitesse did to allow actual stateful systems on Kubernetes is they brought it back sort of completely out of Kubernetes control of how the information was going to remain under any circumstance. Uh, So you have protections built in for a volume getting corrupt. You have protections built in for a pod getting terminated, for a node going down, even for an entire data center going down you have the ability to continue to have access to your data and continue to be able to serve that traffic. That's really what you need for a stateful system. So as Kubernetes gets more mature, you're starting to see more solutions where we could tolerate pod failures but still have access to our data. We could tolerate node failures but still have access to our data. Right now what the marketplace looks like is there's really nothing out there built into Kubernetes that actually satisfies that contract for a stateful application you still have to handle stuff uh, manually outside to get reliable and consistent access to your data. Tell me if this is a way of boiling down what you both just said. With Kubernetes, you are introducing more components that are required to have a persistent transaction fully occur. There's more moving parts there's more abstractions, and therefore, there are more partitions that can occur across a transaction. And so in order to have partition tolerance, you have to be able to cover more cases for a given stateful transaction. Is that right? Yeah, I think that word partition tolerance, that's a fantastic way of describing it because that is what you have. You have now created a bunch of extra connections that can fail. You have to be able to handle all of those partitions. It's no longer just a network partition. You have pods that could go down, you have nodes that could go down, and these all represent partitions that you would have to handle. Okay, so... What has been your interaction as other people have adopted Vitesse? So as you've seen companies like Square and Slack, these companies have high-volume workloads that are dissimilar from YouTube. They are similar in some ways, but they probably put new strains on Vitesse. Were there any interesting changes to Vitesse that happened as companies like Slack and Square and HubSpot adopted it? That's a great question. So I think a lot of new features got built. Definitely Vitesse has become a more general purpose solution as these companies have started using it. But I cannot think of anything that was, I mean, I can think of things that were built by these companies because they thought they needed it. And 
pretty much everybody in the community said that yes this is a great idea let's do it but the architecture of, of vitess is such that i think i don't think that there is something that was built into vitess that solved one one particular use case for one particular user and was not useful for other users well when we talk about stateful management on kubernetes what does that include beyond the database layer like i can think of other things like redis which is you know kind of a, a the in memory data store which i guess is kind of a database but maybe there are other other kinds of workloads other than databases that put different constraints on vitess is there anything beyond the database as a service workload that you are considering at the moment no we are focused on relational oltp workloads on kubernetes as database as a service so so now you are asking us as planet scale right yes right yeah so that's what we are focused on right now but so with uh, sugu just recently finished working on a feature called v replication and that's a very interesting uh, feature because that will allow people that will make some olap workloads really easy let me just quickly uh, describe uh, what it is so i think earlier in the podcast i described to you that uh, vitess has the ability to consume the binary replication logs from the master apply sharding logic to it and write it, uh, write you know split that replication uh, stream and up- write it to multiple masters so we took this and sort of pushed it one layer below in the architecture and made it composable and what that allows us to do now is the ability to provide uh, what we call multi shard um, materialized views uh, so what i mean by that i'll just give you a quick example let's take the example of uh, a marketplace which let's say there are like hundreds of millions of users tens of millions of merchants and orders which have a user id and a merchant id both right so at that scale you typically probably end up having user sharded using user id merchant sharded using merchant id and now you need to make a, you, you have a question what do i do with my orders do i shard them using user id or do i shard them using merchant id typically you would let's say that you looked at your query pattern most of your queries were using user id you decided to shard the orders using user id and so orders li- for a particular user orders live with in the within the user shard with the user now what happens when a query comes where it says give me all the orders for this particular merchant right this typically ends up becoming a scatter gather you know vitess deals with it but it sends the query to all the user shards gets the results back for that particular merchant id uh, combines them all together and sends it back to the app so this is not efficient so what v replication allows you to do is if let's say that there are m shards of using user id and n shards using merchant id we start m cross n replication streams so the application is still writing orders into the user shards but the there is a replication stream which is replicating the same data in the merchant shard using the merchant id that has that was just written to the user shard right so what you get is that now if a, if you want to do a merchant id query which you don't need 
read after write consistency but you can live with eventual consistency now this a query can be sent to merchant shard and would be s satisfied by a single merchant shard it doesn't need to be a scatter gather so you basically get a materialized view of orders sharded according to the merchant id not only this but I mean, this is really useful when you are trying to do uh, rollups uh, for many because many olap queries you are basically counting in various intervals and so on and all of that can also be done as a part of a replication stream and you don't need to have all these bad jobs and so on which are doing aggregations for you or a completely different system for running these olap queries it's a pretty cool functionality what you're describing here you know because i asked a kind of awkward question around what else you're you're looking at in terms of stateful workloads you're talking about olap style queries and there is you know there, there are these these kinds of queries oltp versus olap these are uh, kind of general industry terms and we've we've covered them on some previous episodes the, the best episode i can refer people to to understand oltp versus olap is an episode we did with uber where they talked about their system for getting transactional data into an analytic data store but basically like the, what a lot of companies have built is they have this oltp database which handles the highly consistent up-to-date transactions that people need to engage with like if i'm getting in an uber car and my payment needs to process and i need to make sure that like i'm in constant contact with the uber uber database so that if i make a trust and safety complaint it's like very quickly recognized by uber that's the oltp style workload but then you also have the olap style workloads where you need to calculate large scale analytics across a uh, you know uh, an aggregation of all the users that are in north america and that is a very different query pattern than you know select this particular user row and update that user's row and the difficulty of oltp versus olap is that you oftentimes have to take an OLTP database and copy it into an OLAP database. And and so then you have another area of, of inconsistency because if I have to copy my entire transactional database into the OLAP database, then the time that I'm spending doing that, there's additional OLTP transactions that are going on. The OLAP database is now out of date so you're going to constantly have this this you know this ETL job that is that is creating a gap in consistency between OLTP and OLAP and so some of the quote unquote new SQL companies which maybe you're you put yourself in that category you're building functionality to have the OLAP queries uh, be able to be served by the same database as the OLTP queries is that right I think that was a really great summary of uh, what, what we are building and what this enables. And so we've talked to, to a number of these new SQL companies that are kind of attacking this problem because this, this is a gigantic problem, the OLTP versus OLAP uh, problem. So there are companies like Citus Data, which was acquired yesterday, TyDB, which we talked to recently. We've talked to VaultDB. Can you describe how approaches to solving OLTP versus OLAP vary across the different companies that are tackling this? TIDB architecture I am somewhat familiar with. I'm not very familiar with Volt. Uh, 
Dan, do you have an answer to that question? Yeah, I mean, so if you look at a lot of the new SQL databases, like some of the ones you mentioned, a lot of what they have done is taking a very well-proven persistence layer. So in the case of TIDB, uh, they use a system built off of rocks, I believe. And they have then written the sharding and management layer on top of that. Uh, Vitesse has an extremely similar approach to solving this problem, we've taken as the base layer MySQL, and we have built our sharding layer on top of it. I think the major difference that you'll see is kind of how these products came to market. If you look at the history of Vitesse, Vitesse was built out of a need at YouTube to shard their data, and all of the design decisions and the features that are in Vitesse are traceable back to actual things that occurred at YouTube that required some bit of software to solve. I think a lot of these other systems are solving the same problem, but they're sort of coming at it from the other direction. They see that there is this differentiation in query types and they know the problem can be solved, so they're going out to solve it. It's not a very stark difference, and you'll see that a lot of what is done is done similarly, but I think what you'll get out of a test is the major difference is the amount of emphasis that is put on management and maintenance, yeah. uh, not necessarily on achieving the highest queries per second or the highest raw throughput. It's really about a system that can be ran, can be ran at scale, and can serve traffic at scale under any circumstance. Right. The product production readiness of it. And as Dan said, I mean, we came to it very clearly from the OLTP side of things. We wanted to build a system that scaled OLTP, and now we are discovering that it can also support OLAP quite nicely. You know, we haven't really figured out how, how we are going to build, uh, you know, take it to the users so that it's easy for them to run OLAP queries, but it's going to be fairly straightforward because, you know, SQL interface is a very well-known and well-understood uh, interface. And between scaling OLTP and scaling OLAP, I would say that scaling OLAP is an easier problem than scaling OLTP. And now having saw, and, and the trade-offs needed are different. Uh, maybe I should not say that it's an easier problem. I should just say that the trade-offs are different. We, we just believe that with this uh, new uh, replication opens up the possibility for us to uh, easily support OLAP workloads, which until about six months ago, Vitesse was not very great at supporting. Dan, since you alluded to this, and I also heard Sugu talk about this a little bit in our previous episode, uh, TiDB uses RocksDB as its storage engine. And in, in the previous episode with Sugu, he talked about the fact that MySQL storage engine is InnoDB, and there are some trade-offs between InnoDB and RocksDB. We actually just did a show about RocksDB that hasn't aired yet, but um, that was quite interesting. And I, I'm, I was so unfamiliar with the whole area of storage engines. Could you talk about storage engines? What does a storage engine do for a database? And what are the com points of comparison between RocksDB and InnoDB? Yeah, I mean, that's the storage engine for a database is the actual mechanism to take your data, write it to some persistent volume, where persistent means slightly different than what we talked about earlier, but it's going to write it in through IO, through the IO protocol of whatever operating system it's on, to actually have that data stick around for an extended period of time. To some non-volatile storage. 
Right. Or even depending on the, the case of the storage engine, like if you're using the memory engine in MySQL, it's going to memory, but it's writing it through IO uh, to some place where it's going to stick around. RocksDB and InnoDB are really sort of the two poster childs for the general classification of storage engines of either a B tree or a log structured merge tree. And these are the data structures that they actually use to persist this data. And when we say the difference between Vitesse and something like TIDB is the storage engine, that's not exactly true because TIDB uses rocks directly. And that is, they will call into the storage engine to actually store their data. Whereas Vitesse, we actually use MySQL, which then uses a storage engine, which by default is InnoDB. So what that'll give you is as you're going through and doing a certain set of operations, you're going to get a different performance profile off of either one of those systems. And it really traces back to the backing data structure. Something like an InnoDB is really good at fetching data and really good at updating data. Something like a RocksDB, which is a log structured merge tree, is really good at appending data and writing data down quickly. All right. And and the cool thing about Vitesse is that, I mean, we actually run on top because we, our layer of abstraction is MySQL, and MySQL can run on top of either RocksDB or InnoDB. We support RocksDB, right? Because MyRocks. Um, so Dan actually showed a very cool demo. Uh, well, he he helped build a very cool demo that was shown by uh, Yakesa Kosaru of uh, State Street Bank at reInvent, where we showed 1.7 million QPS, two-third reads, one-third writes on top of a, a multi-sharded Vitesse cluster, which was backed by MySQL running on top of RocksDB. Yeah, and also the biggest user of Vitesse is a website called JD.com, which is sort of the Chinese version of Amazon. Yeah. Uh, they actually run either with InnoDB or with another engine called TocoDB. TocoDB, yeah. Which is another, it's similar to RocksDB, it's yeah. a slightly different data structure, but they have it so that you can run it with either of those to sort of select the performance profile that you want out of those engines. Correct. Are there any users where they have both storage engines running and then based on the query or based on the something like that, like the, the, they use both? It's possible, but I don't think that anybody is using that. And if I remember correctly right now, we don't have a mechanism of routing queries based on engine type. Mm. Not that hard to do. It's an interesting idea, but... I think at at this level, though, you know, that level of optimization is something, yeah, very specific workloads will benefit from it, I think. Well, if you look at something like what Sugu is doing with vReplication, that kind of workload now actually becomes extremely viable, right? You could have a log structure tree as your right endpoint. Yeah. You could have a, uh, a B-tree based, InnoDB is B-tree based. Uh, you could have that as your read endpoint. Updates would get a little dicey between the two of them, right. but that's entirely something that's in the realm of possibility. Okay. L- let's talk a little bit about the market and kind of the business point of view. So these new SQL databases and these providers such as yourself that are outside of the realm of the gigantic cloud providers, the TIDBs of the world, the rock sets of the world, the planet scale datas of the world, y'all are in pos- different positions than the cloud providers in terms of your, your database go-to-market strategy. What's your perspective 
on the database market and how willing are our buyers to go outside of their cloud provider and purchase a, a database from from someone such as yourself we are in the process of finding out <laughs> so yeah. I, I always remember the quote that says that data has gravity. So yeah. wherever your data is, you have a natural affection to, to put other stuff around it. And cloud providers know this, but consumers know this too, right? You know that if you store terabytes of data in Amazon, Amazon really has is in a very good position to secure the rest of your business. Uh, and they know this, and they're aggressively going out and trying to get people to use their services so that they can sort of partake of that ecosystem. Customers know this too, and we've had customers tell us that um, as great as some of these cloud providers are, they are aware of what it means to put terabytes and terabytes of data into um, a specific cloud provider. So uh, having the option of saying, yeah, we will give you our data, but we are not going to make sure that you're the only way that we can get to it yeah. is, I think, something that a lot of customers find value in. Yeah. And what we are building is, you know, we can actually sit between your application and some of these managed data services like RDS Aurora and RDS MySQL. So you could be using Vitesse to shard a large RDS Aurora uh, database because you know as the size of the database increases even though your write and read throughput might be manageable things like applying DDLs take a long time so it's just generally not a good idea to have really really large sing uh, databases that are running on a single instance so our uh, we allow you to share your RDS Aurora databases or RDS MySQL databases and I think in general, people are finding that they, they don't want to in, go beyond a particular size for a single instance, not only because of the operational ease, but you know, eventual ab ability to migrate if for reason for some reason they, they need to migrate. And one of the sort of selling points that we have, that we have chosen to express is that we are multi-data center, multi-region right from the beginning, or rather multi-cloud, multi-region right from the beginning. So we want to give our customers the ability to have their masters running in AWS in US West and some replicas possibly in GCP on US East and some in Azure running in Japan, right? Now, wow. Yes, and all of this is very doable. Uh, we have POCs where we have done this. The, the, the question mark is, uh, do people actually want to run their workloads like this in production? Maybe not because the latencies are high, right? Uh, yeah. But disaster recovery, right? You, you might right. want to have your data in another uh, a cloud provider not too many replicas, maybe one or two replicas, of course, with some replication lag, but now you have some guarantee that your data is out there. Second is uh, things like GDPR compliance, right? Um, Vitesse architecture, because we allow you to shard, uh, you know, the sharding uh, is really flexible. You can actually shard your data in such a way that your existing data gets distributed correctly in data centers in various regions and some cloud providers might not be available in certain regions and so that might necessitate you to have replicas or masters running in other data centers. 
So there are reasons for which people might want to run these, but there is always, of course, the, the one of the reasons that people have told us that they like multi-cloud is because you know it, it makes it easier for them to have those negotiations with their cloud provider when they are you know renegotiating their uh, contracts. The ability to migrate, just having the possibility, is something that yeah. is useful. I mean, also, you're starting to see a lot more people who want to use a cloud-like deployment model, but don't actually want to be in somebody else's data center. I mean, I know recently at reInvent, AWS announced they were going to start putting AWS-style infrastructure in people's data center. And then slightly before that, they announced that they were going to have a version of RDS that runs on top of VMware. So... You know, it's not as while the cloud is eating a lot, I think with the with the popularity you're seeing off of Kubernetes and out of digital transformation in general, you're getting a lot more models than just the the standard EC2 instance. And I think that's the other place where Vitesse plays really well. And we at PlanetScale feel there's going to be an opportunity is we don't care what flavor of Kubernetes you're running on. We don't care if it's an Amazon or behind closed doors on premises. Vitesse is going to run the same way on all of those. And it can run in parallel on all of those. It can span Kubernetes clusters and it can span on-prem to the cloud across cloud providers. That's something that that no single cloud service is going to be able to offer you. Right. And and so what we are building in a database as a service, of course, but the same software stack that we are using to run our own database as a service, we also license them to enterprises so that they can run it inside their own VPCs or on-prem on Kubernetes in their own data centers, right? And what that allows them to do is to, as Dan said, have clusters where the data doesn't leave their own VPC or their their own security boundaries, but they can still spin out uh, multiple database clusters, either in their dev, staging, or uh, production environments, uh, manage them, test them, and so on. You know, have this whole operational scaffolding be provided by PlanetScale and use Vitesse for stateful workloads on Kubernetes. All right, there were a ton of points in there that we could go much deeper on, but we're basically out of time. Really interesting company you guys are building here. Jeetan, just one last question. You have gone from being an engineer to being a CEO. Can you tell me anything you've learned in that switch or things in the company building process that have surprised you? I think I have learned learned a lot in the last year and a half in domains that I didn't even know existed, right? Fundraising is an interesting example. I have managed people before and I I know what that entails. But just, you know, there are so many aspects to building a company that I really didn't even know existed uh, that I have got to learn in the last year and a half. Okay. Well, guys, thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been really fun talking to you. Likewise, we really enjoyed this. And thanks for having us. Yep. Wow.